Heavenly Father, uh, we do. We need you to be our teacher, and we thank you that you do come to us, and you do teach us by your Holy Spirit the things we need to know for salvation and things we need to know about you in this world. God, this is a confusing portion of Scripture. Some of the imagery is a little bit foreign to us, so we pray that you would open our eyes to see it, and we pray that you would help us to understand it so that we might better understand you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verses, or beginning verse 1, reading through verse 11. This is the word of God. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must soon take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second living creature, like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. It's the word of God. That was clear, right? You guys got that? All right. So I want to start this morning uh, with the story of Nicholas Bolterstorff. Uh, Nicholas, that's not easy to understand either. Let's try and say that name five times fast. Nicholas Volterstorff. Uh, Volterstorff was a philosopher at Yale University. And one of his most famous books was actually not a philosophy book. It was Reflections on the Loss of His Firstborn Son, whose name was Eric. Eric was a rock climber. And at the age of 25, when he was enrolled in a PhD program in the University of Austria, was climbing a rock on a weekend that he had off and his harness came loose, his foot slipped, and he actually fell to his death. And Volterstorff, in this book, A Lament for a Son, recounts how he had went and visited his son's apartment in Austria and gotten a sense and a picture of what his son, of what his son's apartment looked like and what a life that wouldn't be lived would look like following it. And he says he saw the papers on his desk that were unfinished, a book perhaps that would never be written. He saw his clothes. And he said it left an impression in his mind that would never leave him. And on 
the plane ride back, he said when he was recounting the vision of this room, he said, I shall look at the world in a new way from now on. I shall look at the world now through tears. Perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not see. And see, for Volterstorff, there was, there was this fundamental shift. There was a shift in the way he viewed the world, that this impression of his son's empty apartment on the flight home, it would never leave his mind and it would mark and define the way in which he viewed the world from that time forward. And now many of us in here, right, many of us in here, we, we haven't lost a, a loved one tragically, although some of us in this room have. But my question for you this morning is how do you view the world? How do you understand your place in the world? How do you understand your purpose in the world? What were you created for? And maybe you've never thought intentionally about that question, but this world is actually full of images and it's actually full of impressions that are trying to make you see the world a certain way. So take Disney, for example, okay? I watch a lot of Disney movies these days. And Disney has one theme, one message for what your life means and what your purpose is, and it's follow your heart, right? If you boil it down to the the very bottom level, that's the message of every Disney movie, isn't it? It's follow your heart, follow your dreams. No matter what those dreams are, don't let anything stand in your way. Just follow it and pursue it and everything will be all right. You'll achieve your ultimate purpose. Or there's the philosophy and the worldview of Lululemon. Yes, I wear Lululemon, okay? If you don't know what Lululemon is, it's, it, it's nice yoga gear, but I don't do yoga. Anyway, Lululemon, their, their message is live in the now. Live in the present. Let go of everything that crowds out your day. And for 25 minutes a day, just detach from everything that's going on in your world and just live in the moment. And presumably things will go all right. So see, there are these images, these, these impressions that are telling us a certain way to view the world, right? And the question for us is, how do we view the world? And that's exactly the business of Revelation, right? We've seen as we've been studying the book of Revelation that this book addresses that question directly, right? The lens through which you view the world, according to Revelation, is one of the most important things that you can consider. And it's helpful, right, to put before us what exactly this book of Revelation is because it can be unfamiliar and strange to us. And we've seen throughout our study that the best way to approach this book is to read it on its own terms, okay? So the book opens in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, telling us what this book exactly is. It says, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants. And we've seen this already, right, that that word revelation literally is the Greek word apocalypse. It's apocalypse, meaning unveiling. That's what the word apocalypse means. It just means to unveil something. Just like as a husband, right before he's about to marry his bride, would unveil her to see what's behind. That's what Jesus wants us to see in this book. What is behind the reality that we see, smell, taste, and touch? And Jesus wants us to see the revelation, the unveiling of him. So this book centrally is about Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. And that's vitally important, right? It's vitally important we realize that because I've been asked probably a dozen times or so that, hey, when are we going to get to the apocalypse? When's that going to happen? And that's a great question because as we've gone through the first three chapters of Revelation, you probably found yourself a little underwhelmed, right? Well, I thought this, I thought this book was more gloomy and doomy. I thought there were these cataclysmic events and those are going to come, right? <laughs> they will come, I promise. But... 
what's really going on is today when we hear that word apocalypse, we automatically, right, default to thinking, oh, cataclysmic events of doom and destruction that are coming at some date in the future. Because our culture has predisposed us to think of apocalypse with these doomsday scenarios, ones that you would see on the History Channel, right? And, and here's the thing. Here's the thing about Revelation. Many of us approach this book with fear because of that. Or we approach the end times with fear because of that. So it's important that we keep in front of us that Revelation actually wants to do the exact opposite. It doesn't want to bring obscurity and terror to us. In fact, it wants to bring us clarity and comfort. It wants to give us clarity to see the world as God would see the world. Because the Bible is clear about this. We see the world incorrectly. You and I, me and you, we see the world incorrectly. By default, we are actually programmed to view the world incorrectly. Go home. Here's what I want you to do. I have some homework for you. Okay. Go home and I want you to grab a pair of binoculars and flip it backwards and look through it. And then I want you to go and try and grab a cup of water that's sitting on a desk. And if you've ever done this, you know, right, as you try and do that, things are completely out of place and they're out of proportion so that even if you tried to grab the water bottle, you completely miss it, knock it over and spill because reality is distorted. And instead of showing us the way things really are, right, the way the world really is, our vision is out of place and out of proportion. So what does Jesus want to do? He wants to flip the telescope. He wants to flip the binoculars so that you can finally see the world and see Jesus as it was created to be. David Wells, he's an author. I think he puts this perfectly. He said, this condition that we're born in, seeing the world incorrectly, he calls worldliness. And he defines worldliness in these terms. Worldliness is whatever makes God's ways seem odd and strange. And the alternative seem normal and sophisticated. Right when Jesus came, that's what happened, right? <laughs> Who's this guy? He seems odd. He seems strange, right? He didn't seem normal and sophisticated. He was the exact opposite of what everybody had looked for. So that's what worldliness is. That's how we, by default, see the world. And the apocalypse, right, Revelation seeks to correct our distorted vision. And how does John do that? He does it through images, right? These powerful images. And have you ever asked yourself, well, John, if you want to get your message across, why not just say it? Why not just put it in terms that everybody can understand? Well, let me ask you this. What comes to mind when you think of September 11th, 2001? They've actually done surveys of what this is, and you know what people remember most? It was a picture from page 7 of the New York Times in uh, published on September 12th, 2001, a falling man. You remember falling man? It was the picture of a man who faced with the situation of whether or not I'm going to die by the flames behind me or the ground below, chose the ground below. And it is a still photo of him face down, going down what to ultimately was his death. But falling man, an image, a picture. That's what people remember most. And Jesus and John are doing the same thing. They're taking these Old Testament images, okay, and they are putting them into, they're compressing them into this book, so that we can see the rest of the Bible in vivid imagery. That's what he's trying to do. So because Jesus and John are not just after our intellect, they don't want us to know just right things. They want to capture our hearts and our imaginations. 
And John, he has two audiences in mind, and we have to keep these right before us as well. Remember, his audience, he's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's how the letter opens, John to the seven churches in Asia. These are churches in his modern day, which would have been Asia Minor. So he's speaking to this audience first and foremost, but we've also seen that seven in the Bible is the number of completion. It's the number of wholeness, meaning he's not just writing to the church then, he's writing to the church in all times, in all places, in every circumstance. That's the audience. We're the audience. And he writes to them for a specific reason. That's verse 9, chapter 1. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. And now maybe that word tribulation, again, is a loaded term. You think that, okay, that's a, that's a future cataclysmic event. John says he's in the tribulation. So tribulation is something that the church in all times and all places face. And that word tribulation simply means pressure. It's, it means pressure. And for some, like John, it meant exile. It meant being cast out of his homeland because he wanted to follow Jesus. For others, it meant imprisonment and death. And now that's one end of the spectrum of what tribulation can look like. But as we read about, you know, the seven churches in Asia Minor, we saw that there's another end of the spectrum, right? Some people face tribulation and just maybe being tempted into false teaching, right? That's one way. Or a tribulation of complacency, going through the motions, going with the flow. Or the other, you know, temptation was just cultural accommodation. Accommodate to cultural to advance in my life instead of sacrificing and submitting to Jesus. We all face this, don't we? Or some people, they were tempted and facing pressure for sexual compromise. So all of these things are in the background. There's this pressure to go along and get along, and what John calls it is tribulation. So that's what revelation is. Revelation is the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus through John to the church in all times and all places, facing pressure, facing tribulation. And the purpose of all is to flip the telescope, flip the binoculars, so that we could see the world correctly. Eugene Peterson, he says, I do not read Revelation to get additional information of stuff to come because everything in the book of Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible, which is true. He says, I read Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. That's what he wants us to do to see the world through this new lens, this new perspective, to revive our imagination. So what does John want us to see? What does Jesus want us to see? Well, we see beginning in our chapter, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, focus your eyes on this. After this, meaning after these revelations to the churches, after this I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after here, after this. So we don't talk this way, right? We don't wake up and say, behold, at least I don't go into my kid's room and say that, but that's, that's the sense. John wants us to behold, look, like when you're trying to get your kid's attention, when you're walking through the parking lot, hey guys, Don't get distracted looking left and right. I want you to focus here. Focus right here. Behold, look. And what does he see? He sees a door standing open in heaven. And now you have to realize this, that in the Bible, heaven is not a place in the distant future that someday we will go to, although there is some truth to that. But primarily in the Bible, heaven is a place that exists now 
and that it is a spiritual dimension, a spiritual reality that runs parallel to the existence that we can see, we can taste, and we can touch. And if, if you've ever run a marathon or have ever witnessed a marathon or a 5K, right, you know that oftentimes at these races, it doesn't matter what race that you're running, you're running with people who are running a different race than you. So if you're running the marathon, you're running with people parallel right alongside you that are running the half marathon or the 5K, and you don't know who's running what race until the end. And what Jesus is saying is, look here, there is a parallel reality going on right here. There is life as it exists on earth, full of turbulence, full of tribulation. And Jesus wants John to see this other reality, life as it exists now in heaven. He's saying, focus here. If you are facing tribulation this morning, in some way, in some way shape, or fashion, this is your message. Look here, focus here, put your eyes on this. And what does John see? Well, verse two, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So you notice even how John writes here, okay? He describes the one sitting on the throne and he says it was the appearance of Jasper and like Carnelian. So it's not a literal description, right? It's symbolic, it's figurative, like, appearance of. You're gonna see these terms over and over and over throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. So if you think God looks like a pile of rocks, like Jasper and Carnelian, you're not reading it right, okay? This is an impression. It's supposed to capture our imagination. What do we know about Jasper and Carnelian? Well, they're bright and shiny, precious stones. The impression he wants to get is God's beauty and goodness is almost unbearable to look at. Signifying his splendor, his magnificence, his beauty and goodness. We don't use terms like that, but that's what John is trying to get across. He's trying to work it in. And notice as well, as he's straining, right, he also gives another description beginning in verse 3. He says, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And now for those of you who are Old Testament scholars, you know that these are two of maybe the most famous stories that are being symbolized here in the, in the Old Testament. The first of the rainbow is the story of Noah. Noah, you remember that story? Where God in Genesis brought universal judgment by way of a flood. And then what did he want to do to remind all of creation that he would never flood the earth again? He put his bow into the sky. That's what's being pointed out here. It's a sign of God's mercy that this God is a merciful God, not only beauty and good, but merciful. And then right alongside this bow is lightning and thunder, which will remind you of the story of Moses when he went up onto Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. God descended in a thunderstorm with lightning and peals and rumblings of thunder. It was a way to signify God's power, God's ultimate un leashed power. So, you know, one of my favorite authors, he describes it this way. He says, imagine yourself that if you went to a third world country where they didn't speak English, and this is the first time you've ever met this remote tribe, and you were to take just one person and you had the mission to bring this one person to come and live in 21st century Colorado, 
And, the, and you live there for, you know, three months or so, and they start getting familiarized with, you know, the culture around us. And then their task is to go back to their culture and try and describe 21st century America to their people. And what would they do? And just think, how would they describe electricity? Have you thought about that? They would probably say things like, well, you know, they have these long vines and, and these vines go through the air and then it, it connects into their, into their house. And these, these vines, they're not like normal vines, right? They're blackish, right? They're like the ground, they're like the stones on the ground. They're blackish. And it goes into their house and, and what's, you know, what's running through them is it, it's like lightning, it's like lightning and the lightning goes through and, and it enters their house. And then they have these, these tiny little suns, these tiny little suns that they screw up into their, into their ceiling. And then they can have a sun right there in their house. And then sometimes they even beam them to, you know, this little box square where they just stare at it for hours on end, <laughs> night, uh, night after night. We don't know exactly what was going on there. It seems to be that people, very small figures are, are jumping around in there. But you see how they would strain to try and get this across. That's what John's trying to do. He's saying, this God is totally different. He's totally other. He is so good that his goodness can't even really be translated into our human terms because life as we experience it now, the goodness we experience it now, just wouldn't do it justice. He's so powerful. that It's, it's like a thunderstorm. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a thunderstorm? You know, it's really interesting. I, uh, I actually was in a, light, uh, a thunderstorm one time. It was during baseball season, and I was in high school. And we would actually always hear these stories from an umpire that, we, that would always come and officiate our games. He had actually been struck by lightning three times, and he survived. And he was a little eccentric and kooky. You know, being struck by lightning will do that to you. <laughs> and we had a name for him. We called him Crazy Dave because he was a little crazy. But you get this sense, right? When you hear lightning 50 yards away from you, the boom. And right before that lightning strike, all of the energy, all of the electricity, your, your hand, your, your, the hairs on your arms literally start to stand up. The awe of it all. All to symbolize we don't belong here. We don't belong before this power or this mercy or this goodness. Not on earth anyway. We do not belong here. It's what the Bible calls God's transcendence, his otherness, his differentness, his holiness, as we're going to talk about. Have you ever had that sense that you don't belong somewhere? That's, that's what John wants to bring across here. My wife and I, we used to go when we lived in Nashville to this 4th of July festival at a country club that was a couple miles down the road from us. And on our, this is the first time that we went to this. And as we were going, my son Eli had an accident before, so we had to completely change his clothes. And the only extra clothes that we had were like these tattered cut-off jeans that were like jean shorts with like frayed, you know, stuff. And they were like stone-washed jeans. And then we didn't really have another shirt, so we just put them in a tank top. And I'm, meanwhile, I'm wearing like my baseball hat. I'm wearing shorts. And the second that we stepped in, they were like, yeah, we do not belong here, right, at this country club. People had button-down shirts. People are wearing khakis. They're wearing, you know, really nice boat shoes. And they have the, you know, floop over Southern hairstyle. If you've ever seen that on fraternity guys, you know what I'm talking about. But that's not even the most important thing. This otherness, this otherness that John is trying to show us, that's not even the most important thing that he's trying to show us. In fact, did you notice what word was mentioned more than any other? It was throne. Throne. 
mentioned 13 times just in this chapter alone. So the throne of God and the throne in the Bible and in the ancient world was symbolic of power, of authority, of judgment, that God was in control. It symbolized the idea that God is in control of, has power over every single thing that happens in creation, even over the turbulence, even over the tribulation. And John wants the church then and now and anyone who will listen in between to know that God is in control because we are tempted to believe otherwise, aren't we? When we look at the circumstances of our lives, we're tempted to believe, who's in control here? What's going on? Who's in control? It's like my house when my wife's not there. You'd come into my house when my wife's not there and be like, who is in control of this place? I have four kids. And when my wife's not around, they're screaming and there's crying and there's headaches, people, you know, running around naked, tears, hunger. And then there's my kids, you know, so who's in control? What's going on here? But don't you see, that's exactly what John's original audience would have asked. Who's in control? God, if you are almighty, all merciful and all good, why all these imprisonments? Why the exile? Why is it so hard to believe in you? If, if you're this good and this powerful, why, don't, why doesn't everybody just believe in you? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why don't people want to follow you? Why now that we do follow you, everybody kind of you know, looks at us strange? Maybe that's your question this morning. You know, if God is so good, he's so powerful, why did I lose my job? Why did I lose my job? Why are my parents fighting so much? Why is it that when I follow you, God, things actually seem to get relatively harder? Why do we wake up anxious and have these anxieties? Why are some of us depressed? Who's really in control here? John is saying, look, behold, it might not look at it like it from your current circumstances, but look at heaven. God is in control. And that's what makes verse six so important here. In verse six, Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, ancient Israel was a landlocked country. They're not seafaring people, okay? So the sea for ancient Israelites symbolized chaos, disorder, dysfunction. And notice he says that around the throne, it was a sea of glass like crystal, meaning calm, peace, perfect control, that God, despite the circumstances, is actually controlling and ordaining every single individual event that goes on in our daily lives. And it's really cool. Actually, the book of Revelation later on, and I'm just going to give you a foretaste, right? Spoiler alert. Here's what's going to happen. Later on in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21, it's going to say that when God's kingdom comes up there and comes down here, that the sea will be no more. And for those of you who love princess cruises and love the beaches, that doesn't mean that there won't be any beaches in heaven. What it means is everything that causes disorder, dysfunction, everything from cancer down to the minor hangnail that you feel this morning, all of those things will be done away with. All of the things that are unordered and disordered in creation will be reordered to the glory of God. He is in control over all circumstances. And that's not what we default to, right? Because in our circumstances, what do we want God to do? We want him to remove them. 
We want, the, we want him to remove them. Or we look forward to a day when they will ultimately be removed, right? We say things like, well, once I get married, then I'll have security and satisfaction. Once I get into that school that I want, then things will go well for me. Once I get that raise, then finally we're going to have the economic security. And then coronavirus happens. See, you think things are out of control, but God in this throne reminds us very much that he is in control, even over the most minute and most seemingly destructive things in our life. We're going to come back to this throne. But second thing John notices, not only is God in control, not only is he on his throne, but John wants you to really see what's going on around this throne and who's around the throne and what they're doing. He says, around the throne, verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And now there's a little bit of speculation as to who these elders are, but I think it's fair to say that this 24 number symbolizes the completeness of God's people. In the Old Testament, there were 12 tribes of Israel that were the people of God. And in the New Testament, there were the 12 apostles who were supposed to go out and bring in the people of God. So this 24 is emblematic of the people of God. And they're wearing crowns because humankind is the crown of God's creation, right? Made in God's image, they were to rule and to reign over creation. And they were supposed to be ambassadors of God, just as an ambassador, you know, goes and represents a king in a foreign country. That's what we were made to do. We were meant to represent God on this earth as God's crown of creation. And then around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind, and John describes these as looking like a lion. One looks like an ox. One looks like a man. One looks like an eagle swift in flight. And they all have six wings. So just as the elders represent the pinnacle of God's creation, these creatures, these living creatures before God's throne, are supposed to represent the rest of God's created beings. And did you notice, right, as we read through it the first time, what these creatures do day in, day out, without ceasing? Worship. They worship God. Nobody comes up to him and like taps him on the shoulder and is like, man, you've been at this a while. You need to go get some rest. Nobody says that. 24 hours a day, seven days a week into eternity, their function is to worship and glorify God. And the four living creatures, is verse eight, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before him saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created. Do you find it odd that we as humans do not naturally worship God? That there is this radical difference between what exists in heaven and then what exists here on earth. Do you find that odd? My dad, when he used to come home at night, we would all, me and my two brothers, we'd be sitting around our table and we'd be waiting for him to get home from, for dinner. 
And the second that we heard the rattling of that door, we'd spring up from our chairs and we'd run to our dad and say, Daddy-o, Daddy-o, daddy I don't know why we called him Daddy-o. Daddy-o, Daddy-o, Daddy-o. And we'd want to be with him. We'd say, Dad, come play catch with us. Come on, Daddy-o. Let's go play catch. Daddy-o, come scratch my back. Daddy-o, hear how my day went. We would even line up. We, we seriously would do this. We'd line up in our underwear. And after we had brushed our teeth, we'd go up to my dad and we'd breathe in his face because we wanted to say, look how I brushed my teeth, Dad. We wanted to be in his presence. We recognized this is our father. We want to be in his presence. We want to be near him, talk to him, honor him, thank him. Now, isn't it strange that we don't do the same thing to the one who created us? To whom by your will they existed and were created, that we exist, that actually the breath that we draw in now happens because God wills it? You know, I do, I do a lot of marriage counseling uh, just with people every now and again. And you know, if you're a married couple, every time that I get into this marriage counseling, people say their number one problem in their marriage. Do you know what it is? They say communication. And I, and I remind them, I say, hey guys, communication is a big symptom of your problem. But it is not the root of your problem. There, it's actually symptomatic that there is something much deeper going on beneath the surface, and it's the problem of sin. And now you have to understand this, that in the Bible, sin does not primarily mean just doing bad things, although it is that. The symptom of doing bad things actually points to something much deeper, which is worshiping anything that is not God above God, that our biggest problem is actually a worship problem that we are centering our lives, giving glory and honor in our lives to things that are not God. Soren Kierkegaard put it perfectly. He said, sin is building your life and identity on anything that is worshiping anything other than God. That is the root cause of all the problems in your life and the problems in the world. No wonder it's commandment one and two that God is supposed to be at the center. Did you see that there's this fundamental difference, right? Between heaven and earth is this base difference that in heaven, in God, on his throne, worship of him is central. Whereas here on earth, God very rarely enters the equation, even in my own life. It's one of the things that makes Christianity so unique, by the way, is that it's gonna tell us brutally honest things about ourselves. Right, Because most world religions, they say this. They say, ascend the mountain of God. Do enough good things so that you can make your way up to God. And finally, maybe if you did enough good things, then you can stand in God's presence. And you'd want to stand in God's presence. Christianity says the exact opposite. It says that God, the Son, Jesus, has actually come down. And our response was not to fall down and worship him and to say, holy, holy, holy is the God of eternity. Instead, our response was to crucify him. So do you see how different that is? Do you see how different heaven and earth really are? That our response to the God who created us, who loves us, who wants to be with us, was to put him to execution on a Roman cross. That's our fundamental problem, as Ravi Zacharias put it. He said, when we look at the world now, today, our biggest problem is that in the public square, it's been completely reduced to left or right, forgetting that in the world there's an up and a down. Right? What's the problem in life? Well, it's it's the Democratic Party or it's the Republican Party. It's their conservatives or it's the liberals. 
It's never the fact that we never want to humble ourselves and be in the presence of our God and the fact that we have forsaken that, that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. We forgot the fundamental vertical relationship that we are created for. And so what happens when we don't worship God? What happens when God isn't the center? Well, one of my favorite pastors, he actually put it this way. He said, when we do that, it's not as if the choice is, okay, I'm going to either worship God or not worship God. No, he puts it this way. He says that we are actually homo-religious. That that is who we are as human beings. That's our fundamental DNA. We were made to worship God. So if we don't worship the one who's truly on the throne, the God of the Bible, we'll worship something else. And he puts it in kind of a humorous way. He says, you'll replace verse 8 to say this, holy, holy, holy is my career almighty, who was and is and is to come. Or worthy are you, my fame and my accomplishments to receive glory and honor and power. Worthy are you, my wealth, to give me security and meaning and purpose. And that's humorous, but the result is actually very devastating. When you don't live for the purpose that you were created for, the result is tragedy and chaos, tribulation and turbulence. Perfect example of this would be Dennis Rodman. I recently watched a documentary of Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman is a phenomenal basketball player. And in many ways, his life is really just a tragic story of really bad circumstances that have accumulated in his life. But Dennis Rodman, famous basketball player, immensely wealthy and very recognized. He actually closes out his documentary saying this. He says, I am one of the top 10 most recognized figures in the world. And he stops as his eyes well up with tears and he begins to choke up and says, you think I'd be happy. Bjorn Borg, he said after he won his second Wimbledon title, he said it was when he was lifting up the Wimbledon plate, that he was fending off thoughts of suicide. One author I heard of recently, he was being interviewed. And he said that if I could go back and tell myself then what I know now, I would say that once you reach the top of the mountain, nothing's there. Friends, is it possible that what you're struggling with in your life right now what's frustrating you right now that at the root of that is actually a worship problem that this beautiful loving merciful all-powerful God wants to relate to you you were created to worship God and as the words of Augustine a famous theologian put it he said you created us for yourself O God and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you that's what we were made for to worship this God And I said, I'd come back to this throne. See, it's significant because this throne is not going to just stay in heaven. We're going to see as Revelation gets unpacked a little further on that this throne is not going to stay in heaven, but God is going to make on earth as it is in heaven. That the throne that governs the universe will come down and govern the thrones of this world. All other false powers, all other things that seem to be merciful, but they're actually ruthless and destructive to our lives, will completely be obliterated and completely done away with. That this God who is good and beautiful will draw us to himself and we will live in the presence of this God forever. And as my kid's storybook Bible says, all the sad things of earth will come untrue. Wow. Wow. 
And the most significant thing about this throne is the one who sits on it. We're going to see this next week in Revelation chapter 5. So come again. But in Revelation chapter 5, we see the one seated on this throne is Jesus. And that this Jesus didn't come to just make us better people, to get your act together. But he actually came to restore this vertical relationship, this up and down relationship, so that we could stand in the presence of this God who is holy, beautiful, good, powerful, and merciful, and experience his goodness into eternity, into everlasting. And he did that by leaving his throne in heaven, entering this earth down here, being crucified on a cross so that he might change us and renew us, forgive us so that we can approach this holy God and actually live as we were meant to. That's what Jesus announced. This is Jesus' very first words of ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because when he came down from his throne, heaven had broken, it had entered. So we know that just as surely as he came in his first coming to die for us, to demonstrate that he loves us, that he's good, that we, like Isaiah, remember in the opening during our worship, we heard about Isaiah who saw God's holiness, fell down on his face and said, I'm not worthy, woe is me. So that when God, when his throne comes down in his piercing beauty and holiness, we will not be repelled, but covered by the blood of Jesus who forgives us of our sins, we can stand before this holy God who loves us and be in his presence, our Father. And we will know what Jesus meant when he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a beautiful, good God who wants us in your presence who wants to draw us near to you. And you were willing to send your son to die, to forgive us of our sins, that we might actually approach you in your holiness and goodness and fall at your feet and do that which we were created to do, which is live all of life with you at the center, experiencing your goodness, your glory, your beauty, your justice, and your mercy. We pray that those things would penetrate our hearts, that we would see you, Jesus, the son of God, our Savior, as our only hope to achieve this relationship with God the Father. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see it and that it would be beautiful and believable to us. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.